from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Special thanks to some of my patrons. Janice, Thomas, Pahoten, Sue, Doc, Shannon, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dear two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on The Bell Witch, And as most stories go, it starts with a man by the name of John William Bell, who was born sometime in 1750, as his actual birth date is not known, in Edgecombe County, North Carolina, which is now part of Halifax County. His father before him was born in what they called the Virginia Colony and eventually bought a 100-acre tract of land on the south side of Roanoke River. It appears that he died when John was just four years old. Ancestry documents show that his mother died in 1750, so perhaps she died during childbirth or just after. John had two brothers and two sisters. Now, who finished raising the children? I don't know. So there's really no information spelling out what kind of childhood he had, but I think we can all assume he had to work hard as anyone did back then. We do know that John was an apprentice barrel maker during his formative years. Craftsmen who made wooden barrels were called coopers, and coopers were tradesmen who made casks, buckets, barrels, and containers for flour, gunpowder, tobacco, shipping, wine, milk, and other liquids, such as alcohol. At some point, John later pursued a career in farming. I couldn't find whether or not he had been married prior, though sources list no former spouse. But at the age of 32 years old, John married, now sit down, 
12-year-old Lucy Williams. Yes, folks, you heard that correctly. She was just 12 years old. She was the daughter of wealthy farmers and described as a pleasant and mild-mannered woman, though at just 12 years old, she was a child who could not even read or write. Anyway, moving on. John and Lucy married in 1782 and settled into family and farm life together, and one must keep in mind that they owned slaves at the time. In 1790, after being married for eight years, Lucy gave John his first son, Jesse, then followed by Elizabeth or Betsy, Richard, John Jr., Drury, and Benjamin, six children in total. Now, the official bellwitch.org site seems to list several more children and have some genealogical information with them, listing the children as Jesse, Benjamin, Drury, John Jr., Esther, Zadok, Elizabeth, or Betsy, Richard, and Joel. A memorial on findagrave.com lists the children in birth order as Jesse, John Jr., Drury, Esther, Elizabeth, or Betsy, Richard, Joel, and Zadok and Benjamin, who didn't have birth years listed. Now, I find that Find a Grave is a very accurate place, so this last listing is most likely accurate. At any rate, they had several children together. So it was said that life was good for the couple and their children. They were considered quite wealthy for the times. In the 1790s, there was a wave of immigration that continued well into the 1800s, and North Carolina, like so many of the original 13 colonies and states, was struggling to keep its territory populated. Free land offered by newly opened territories in western Georgia, Alabama, northern Florida, and even off into Mississippi, Indiana, Kentucky, and the newly stated Tennessee seemed so promising and people were just simply moving. And the Bells saw some of their acquaintances uproot and move west as well. And then the years 1801 and 1804, John saw that both crop seasons were failures and they decided that they would move west. They had heard that the land on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains was so much more favorable and fertile. But according to the documentary, The Mystery of the Bell Witch Haunting by Real History, the Bell family moving west had some sort of mysteriousness to it as well. John and others had been members of a church that had also moved out west and reestablished itself as the Red River Baptist Church back in 1791. The Red River itself runs over a hundred miles through southern central Kentucky and the middle of Tennessee and is named after the river's unique watercolor, which is caused by the clay and silt deposits containing iron oxides. So again, under mysterious reasons, quote unquote, and it's rumored John had molested or sexually assaulted a young girl, which spurred on their move. Some say it was rather shady business dealings, but most find it rather peculiar that in his mid-50s, when he and his family were considered quite prominent in North Carolina, well, that he would want to move and start all over. 
But whatever the reason, the Bell family began the journey over the mountains into eastern Tennessee and onto what was then called the Barren Plains and settled in what is now Robertson County, Tennessee. He eventually bought what sources said was a whopping 320 acres from the Batts family. Now, the lore says that Kate Batts felt that she had been cheated, nay, swindled in the deal, being paid far less than she had been expecting. Some say that she didn't hold any real ill will towards John. The families were neighbors, and it was said that Kate was not a fan of John's by any stretch of the imagination. But make no mistake, it was said that Lucy, John's husband, was no pushover and was actually described later as being the voice of reason, though again she could not read or write. But again, John became a successful farmer and gained prominence quickly in the area. He became an elder of the Red River Baptist Church. So let's get into a bit about the church life back then. Again, from the bellwitch.org site, it says, quote, The church played a major role in everyone's life back in the days of John Bell. Nightly prayer meetings, revivals, and similar activities were commonplace in Tennessee's early frontier, and the church was frequently called upon to settle personal issues such as disputes between neighbors, end quote. So we know that his neighbors were less than satisfied with their dealings with John. This church, like most others, kept records of these types of things, and there was an entry in July 1816 that stated, though I've changed the offensive description of black people because I personally don't like it, but it said, quote, Brother Bell informed the church that there was a report in circulation that he had taken unlawful interest from money lent Benjamin Batts, which report Brother Bell says is false. Inasmuch as he never lent Mr. Batts a cent of money or received a cent of interest from him at all, Brother Bell then called on to inform the church what he supposed gave rise to said report. He said sometime about the 1st of June past, he purchased a black slave girl from said bats, for which he gave said bats $100, but did not get possession of said girl for several days afterwards. Bats insisted the girl was worth more and insisted to have liberty to sell her again, at last, Brother Bell told him if he then sold the girl, he must pay him, Bell, $150. Bell then had the girl in possession and a bill of sale for her. Some days afterwards, Mr. Batts and Mr. Boggan went to the Bell's house and gave him, they said, $150. Bell counted out $120 and observed that he was satisfied with that. He then gave up the girl and burnt the bill of sale. After more talk on the matter, it was postponed for consideration until tomorrow. End quote. So then the next day, the church minutes record states, quote, the church with the brethren who were present unanimously justified Brother Bell and what he did agreeable to the evidence that came to them. End quote. 
Now, Mr. Batts was none too pleased with this outcome, and he took the issue to court. The next year, 1817, John Bell was tried for and convicted of usury, defined as the illegal action or practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. This conviction was scandalous as he was an elder of the church and it embarrassed the church so completely that they decided to reconsider the issue within the church. So in November 1817, the church meeting minutes states, quote, On motion agreed to reconsider the case of Brother Bell as decided in July 1816, on motion agreed to set Brother Bell as decided aside for a hearing on the matter of taking usury, him having been found guilty by the jury in the circuit court for the county of Robertson, as such we think the cause of religion or the religious causes suffer in his hands. End quote. John was found guilty and excommunicated from the church meaning basically shunned or kicked out. His fate was decided based on the additional charges of covetousness and contempt, which had been arguments brought out about him from meetings in months before. Covetousness, as defined by Oxford dictionaries, is the feeling of having a strong desire for the things that other people have, synonym envy. The want and desire for things others have. He cuts. Now, the contempt portion was based on three specifications. John was supposedly saying that the church had received a member who did not walk according to the apostolic order. The second stemmed from John supposedly having said, quote, harsh, contemptuous words, end quote, against the church. The third and final specification was from John allegedly having actually threatened to withdraw his membership from the church itself. Now, John petitioned the church to be reinstated quite a few times, and later, a group of leading members of surrounding churches did recommend he be reinstated, but the Red River Church said, no way. And yet John continued to try to clear his name with the church. Now, before all of this drama, John and his family again were successfully farming and lived in relative peace. But during all of this hoobla, if you will, strange things began to happen to the family. The rest of the children had been born and were flourishing by this point. So in 1817, the same year that John was tried and convicted by his own church of usury, it is said that John randomly saw what appeared to look like a dog with a rabbit's head on his land and he tried to shoot it, but was unsuccessful. Soon after, John's son Drury saw what appeared to be a bird of, quote, extraordinary size perched on a fence he tried to approach it, but it flew off, and the boy said he'd never seen a bird anywhere like it. Daughter Elizabeth, though she went by Betsy, who would have been around 11 years old or so at the time, began seeing a girl in a green dress swinging from the limb of an old oak tree. 
One of John's slaves, a man by the name of Dean, later stated that he had been followed by a large black dog on evenings that he would go visit his wife. It didn't take long for the strange sights and sounds to make their way into the Bell household. The family began hearing what sounded like someone knocking on the walls at night in the house, and then sounds like rats gnawing the bedposts, which then escalated to what sounded like dogs fighting and chains dragging along the floor, or sometimes what sounded like rocks being dropped on the floor, or even loud gulping or choking sounds. If someone lit a candle to investigate these sounds, it would immediately cease except the noises would immediately manifest from where usually John was upstairs, having just lit the candle down to Betsy's room, which made her, quote, scream in fright. When John and his sons would hear the scratching or any other commotion coming from outside the house, they would hurry outside to try to bust whoever was doing it, but there just wasn't anyone ever there, because you see... The now haunting seemed to be more focused on John and Betsy in particular, though no one in the family was immune. The children began complaining that their covers were being ripped from atop them while they were sleeping in bed and their pillows tossed to the floor by no one, an invisible entity. And then the phenomenon escalated to John beginning to experience paralysis inside his mouth. The family began audibly hearing what at first sounded like the slightest, faint whispering voices that was hard to make out, but was described as a, quote, feeble old woman singing hymns, end quote. These whispers strengthened quickly and began turning into a loud voice, singing hymns and quoting scripture. The younger children began experiencing having their hair pulled and flesh scratched, mostly occurring to Betsy, who later described being slapped, pinched, and stuck with pins. It was said that her skin would display angry, raised welts and handprints from the assaults, including on her face. The voice then began to have actual full-on conversations with members of the family within the house, this all escalating over a few months' time. So John at first demanded no one speak of these occurrences, but as they escalated and grew in intensity, he finally broke down and shared his family trouble with his closest friend and another neighbor, Mr. James Johnston. And so James and his wife offered to spend the night in John's home to see if they too might hear or experience these strange happenings. And as predicted, they experienced the same terrifying whispers, bangings, scratches, and other sounds. It was said that James leapt from the bed and shouted, quote, In the name of the Lord, who are you and what do you want? End quote. But there was no response, and it was said that the rest of the night was peaceful. And as we all know what happens in very small communities, word began to spread like wildfire, and before long, 
Everyone in the Red River community knew the story. In fact, it spread so far and wide that people began to show up having traveled great distances, at least for the times, to come and see or experienced for themselves the strange occurrences in the Bell home. Now this part I've heard a lot of back and forth about. Some say this is absolutely true, others say that this is a myth, but I will tell you and you can decide for yourself. It was said that this story caught the attention of the future president of the U.S., but then a major general, Andrew Jackson, visited the home in 1819 after he had heard the story from the three grown sons, John Jr., Drury, and Jesse, who had verifiably served under Mr. Jackson's command at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. As the story goes, and again, some say this never happened, okay? But the story coming from the southerngothicmedia.com site describes, quote, The future president arrived at the Bell's property in the company of several men, horses, and a wagon. Purportedly, upon arriving on Bell property, these horses suddenly stopped and, despite spending some time attempting to urge the animals forward, the horses pulling the wagon refused to continue on. Eventually, Jackson proclaimed, quote, By the eternal boys, that must be the bell witch, end quote. In response, an unknown female voice called out that the men could now proceed to the house and that she would visit with them later. Suddenly, without prompting, the horses continued up the path to the bell house. That evening was initially quiet. However, one of Jackson's men, a self-proclaimed, quote, witch tamer, began boasting and taunting the entity. He proclaimed that the reason no activity occurred was a result of its fear of him and what he could do to it. Without warning, the supposed witch tamer suddenly began to scream, his body violently jerking about in all directions, as though he was being beaten and stuck with pins until eventually he was sent flying head first out the door of the house, presumably as the result of a kick to his behind. The same female voice the men had heard earlier in the day returned and threatened to expose and torment another fraud within the group if they continued to stay in the house. Jackson's men begged to be allowed to leave the farm. However, the Major General insisted on staying so that the second so-called fraud could be identified. Unfortunately, it is unknown what happened next, but the following morning, witnesses were said to have seen Jackson and his men in nearby Springfield headed in the direction of Nashville. End quote. Some later alleged that Andrew Jackson proclaimed, quote, I would rather fight the British at New Orleans than fight with the Bell Witch, end quote. It was said that the spirit had a sweet singing voice and she had the ability to provide accurate information about two co-occurring sermons happening in vastly different places, reciting the sermons verbatim. 
She was also known to have a rather playful side where she acted as a prankster, promising great fortunes if three specific people would spend a day digging and moving large boulders only to laugh and ridicule them publicly when no treasure was found. But it was poor Betsy who continued to be the prime target of these supernatural attacks, and even more so when Betsy had decided to get married. She had become quite fond of her husband-to-be, Joshua Gardner, who was from the local community. Both sets of parents had given their consent for the young couple to get married, and everyone seemed excited about the engagement. But apparently, the entity did not consent. For every time the young couple would try to spend innocent time together by, you know, taking a stroll along the river or whatever, the spirit, as they called it, would follow them and taunt them, demanding Betsy not marry Joshua. Now, word around the campfire was that Betsy and Joshua's former school teacher, one Professor Richard Powell, had been quite open and obvious about his interest in Betsy for a few years and had expressed interest in marrying her once she became older. He was 11 years older than her and apparently a student of the occult, ventriloquism, a mathematical genius, and well-versed in horticulture and geology. He was, of course, already secretly married to a woman in Nashville while he was teaching at the Red River School. No one knew of this marriage and thought him to be a happy-go-lucky bachelor. So when Richard discovered Betsy was engaged to Joshua, he wasn't happy, but it was said that he wished them a long and prosperous marriage. Interesting. And as we can all imagine just how exhausting all of this would be, Betsy's resolve began to wear thin to the point that she unfortunately began to agree with the spirit and on Easter, in 1821, she broke off their engagement, and after this, it was said that the spirit backed off. But the spirit, who came to call themselves Kate, much like the neighbor's name, hmm. So Kate's main focus of hate, then, was targeted towards John himself, vowing to end his life. John's health was already beginning to decline. As I mentioned earlier, it started with him experiencing paralysis in his mouth. His facial muscles began twitching. It became more difficult for him to eat and swallow. By late 1820, he was confined to his house and sources stated that he did try to get up and walk around, but the spirit would remove his shoes or slap him in the face. This is when he began experiencing seizures. People could hear the voice of the spirit cursing and chastising what it called, quote, Old Jack Bell. So when someone would ask the spirit who it was and what it wanted, it would answer, quote, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed, end quote. It was said that it had come out to haunt after Native American burial grounds had been disturbed. Men then searched but found no such area. 
The spirit would speak of John's wife, Lucy, fondly, stating that she was the most perfect woman to walk the earth. It was said she fed her fruit when she was ill and so on. So on the morning of December 20th, 1820, John, who had slipped into a coma the day before, died. The family, as they mourned, found a vial with a, quote, strange black liquid in the cupboard. John Jr. decided to put two drops of this liquid on their cat's tongue and, as the story goes, the cat leapt into the air, rolled over while in midair, and was dead before it hit the ground. Then the spirit was said to have exclaimed, quote, I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night, which fixed him, end quote. John Jr. then tossed the vial into the fire, and it was said to have burst into a bright blue flame and shot up the chimney. It was recorded that John's funeral was one of the largest ever held in Robertson County, Tennessee, and people came from miles away, including three preachers who eulogized him. As the people began to disperse and leave the graveyard, it was said that the spirit laughed and sang a song about a bottle of brandy, and she did not stop her singing until the very last person had left the graveyard. It was said Lucy inherited one slave, Dean, we discussed earlier, a 106-acre tract of land that included the Bell Home and the cemetery where she remained until her death in 1838. She is buried in the Old Bell Cemetery with her husband and some of her children. Now, John and Lucy's son, Richard, wrote, quote, whether it was witchery, such as afflicted people in past centuries and the darker ages, whether some gifted friend of hellish nature practicing sorcery for selfish enjoyment, or some more modern science akin to that of mesmerism, or some hobgoblin native to the wilds of the country, or a disembodied soul shut out from heaven, or an evil spirit like those Paul drove out of the man into the swine, setting them mad, or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide, nor has anyone yet divined its nature or cause for appearing, and I trust this description of the monster in all forms and shapes, and of many tongues, will lead experts who may come with a wiser generation to a correct conclusion and satisfactory explanation, end quote. Beautifully said. So in 1924, four years after her father died, Betsy gave in and married her former school teacher, and they settled down in a nearby community known now as Cedar Hill. She went on to have eight children, but only four of those children reached adulthood. One of those surviving died in the Civil War. Her husband went on to hold a number of public offices, but had a massive stroke and left him an invalid in 1837. He survived another 11 years, but Betsy always insisted that her marriage had been a happy one. She held on to her reputation for being very witty and personable but she absolutely refused to speak about Kate the Spirit with anyone outside of her immediate family. 
She died in July 1888 after living with one of her daughters for some time in Mississippi. So what about the spirit, Kate? After John's death, it was said that her presence was almost non-existent, other than still messing with Betsy about her marriage wants. Sources say that the spirit visited Lucy, the widow by now, and told her that it was leaving for seven years and then it would return. And it kept its promise, returning in 1828, where it was said most of the activity was centered around John Jr., who would sit and discuss matters with it, such as the origin of life, Christianity, and the need for a mass spiritual awakening. The spirit also allegedly gave accurate predictions of the Civil War and other future events. It then departed again, promising to return in 107 years and promised to visit the direct descendants of John. And nearly as promised, the spirit now labeled the Bell Witch returned in 1934, just one year shy of the 107-year promise to haunt the closest living descendant, Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, who was a physician in Nashville, and he wrote and published a book about his ancestors' hauntings. It is unknown if the Bell Witch promised any future visits again. The Bell Witch is considered to be the most documented hauntings in American history. A man by the name of Martin V. Ingram, who had fought during the Civil War, later went on to have a career in editing and publishing in the newspaper industry. He researched and traveled the area of the Bell Witch, quote, for the purpose of viewing the grounds where historic and most intensely thrilling events were enacted 75 years ago, end quote. He interviewed those people who were familiar with the stories as intimately as he could find, members of the Bell family or neighbors, anyone he could get in contact with and get the stories. He then compiled all of his reports all of his research and put it all together in his book, An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch. The introduction of the book included a letter from James Allen Bell, John's grandson, explaining that John's sons had decided that none of their family papers should be made public until the last immediate family member had died an event which occurred in 1891 when the youngest member of the family, Joel Egbert Bell, passed. In 1937, a man who owned a farm that included the Bell Witch Cave that had been on the original Bell property stated that he had heard unexplained noises coming from within. A group of people said they saw a woman sitting on top of the cliff over the cave scaring them so completely that they fled. So there are a lot of theories about the Bell Witch, as well as the causes around the family's disturbances. Most experts believe John's death was the result of a degenerative neurological disorder, which physicians weren't really aware of back then. His earlier symptoms seemed to mirror those of Bell's palsy, no pun intended. Some think Kate Batts was behind all of this. 
Some say the hoax was created because John might have been displaying inappropriate behavior towards his daughter, Betsy. It is said that strange things still occur on or near the Old Bell property, such as the faint sounds of people talking and children playing. Locals have seen strange dog-shaped or cat-shaped creatures with red eyes. Some witnesses have said that they've seen what looks like candlelights dancing through the dark fields late at night. Some photos show mist, light orbs, or what looks like human-like figures in the frames that were not there when the pictures were taken. There is a White Tennessee Historical Commission marker along Route 41 in Adams, Tennessee, showing where this occurred. And really, this has become every bit part of the local folklore and legend of Tennessee, as well as the South. Many people believe the Bell Witch was the inspiration for the movie, The Blair Witch Project, as well as An American Haunting. Unfortunately, the Bell House is no longer standing, but there are evidently many Bell Witch attractions in and around Adams, Tennessee. I don't know where I stand on all things supernatural, but in this specific example, I lean more toward this being a hoax of some kind. An angry neighbor by the name of Kate and the spirit calling itself Kate. Or how about Betsy's former school teacher wanting to wife her up but being forced to wait because she wasn't of age, eventually getting exactly what he wanted in Betsy not marrying the man she loved? I don't know, guys. Tell me, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. We now have a fan page on Facebook, Serial Killing Fan Page, so come join the group if you'd like to. But most importantly, thank you so much, guys, for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.